making back the annual count. That was their fortnight. Right, that's right. And uh, yeah. the organisation involved was it a question of linked with transport and yeah. uh, supplies to. Accommodation, training facilities, and all that, yes, that was quite a big, basically an administrative organization, getting ready for camp. But the other thing I remember now, going back, thinking back, um, we were still in a sort of Cold War situation, weren't we? And there was still, as I was called up because we thought there was a threat of mobilization. And we had to go around various parts of Wales, um, earmarking various buildings and places that were designed or earmarked to, to be used in events of mobilisation, certain houses which would, be, which would be useful as depots or military towns. We couldn't tell the people, in fact it was forbidden to say their house had been earmarked to the, <laughs> the transport centre, but they were all listed on a highly secretive document uh, and where they were and their suitability in the event of mobilisation. So this was still going on in 1952-53. Interesting then, casting back. <laughs> now, after the spell uh, the Welsh Division, yeah. you were then returned to, well then the, the return, you went to RME Sandhurst yeah. as an instructor. Yeah. Now, the role of an artilleryman at Sandhurst... Um, yeah, it doesn't matter what your regiment is at Sandhurst uh, then, and I think now, you're just an instructor. Mm -hmm. It's a great feather in your cap that the regiment has uh, deemed it right that you should represent the regiment of Santos. So that's the first thing. It's a great feather to go there and represent your regiment. And each regiment, at that time, anyway, I had a vacancy for so many officers. I can't remember. My gunners were, say, five regiment instructors. But once you got there, you were just an instructor, regardless of your call, uh, as a straightforward company instructor, that is. And I just went to uh, Gaza Company, which was one of the companies, and my three other instructors, uh, two commanders, one was uh, Royal Army Service Corps, one was an infantryman, one was a gunner, and my company commander was an infantryman. But your regiment didn't really uh, pay any influence in, in the job you were doing. You were just a platoon commander or a company instructor, and you instructed right across the board in fairly basic infantry tactics. The whole essence of the training was designed to produce a, a platoon commander, not a gunner officer, a platoon commander in the infantry. Therefore, the training was all towards the infantry. The theory being that once everybody had to have the basic training of an infantry platoon commander, and then when they left the commissioning, they could be trained up separately to their own particular corps, be it gunner or logistics or whatever. So, a gunner officer then go to Woolwich after Sandhurst? Uh, yeah, to Larkhill, actually, to Larkhill, yes. Yeah. So a gunner officer would go to six months training as a young officer in the art and science of particular gunnery. Or if you were going to be an air defence, ACAC gunners, they were, they went to Manabir in those days. But the field gunner would go to Manabir for six months after leaving Sandhurst. And the RAC officer went to, the Army Corps went to Bobbington. And the infantry officers, even they went to school infantry, I think much shorter time, probably about two months, because they'd already been yes, young officers. But those who weren't going, the gunners had to, those who weren't going in threat then be trained after leaving Santos to be specialists in their own particular arm or regiment. But while at Santos, you were just a general instructor and you were taught to infantry, platoon in the defence, or accounting, uh, or logistics as it came along. It didn't matter about your arm at all. Quite interesting time, really, particularly for those who were non infantry, like myself, although we did know quite a lot about infantry tactics, most of us. <laughs> yeah. At that time, it was, I think, course, it was two years. Far too long, actually, looking back. 
we had played a lot of games and a lot of uh, outside activities, but now the course has been down to six months and now recently gone up to a year, I think, isn't it, Sandhurst? So it's gone fluctuating back and forth. Then it was two years. So the two years you spent there, you saw one intake right through then, did you? Is that yes, essentially that's right. Yeah. But you didn't concentrate on one intake. You had a platoon, and it had, I think I'm right, three different grades of intake in it. So the juniors, intermediate, and seniors mixed up in the platoon. So you looked after them, but you might instruct, in fact, any particular intake. Uh, or possibly you specialise a little bit, you may specialise, for instance, in uh, accounting, which I mentioned that sort of thing, which was quite important. And you taught that mostly, but you taught right across juniors, intermediates, and seniors. Yeah. And then, um, there's this of particular interest, uh, you had this this posting yeah. to East Africa, yeah. uh, the end of the Mau Mau, as you put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was reading about this for the purpose of the Northumbria's Beard Museum, because they were yeah. up there earlier. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And um, one of these, of course, crops up there is Frank Kitson, who yeah. was involved yeah. in the device of infiltration. Yeah. And, uh, so the, this the stage you, you saw as been mopping up, was it, Mau Yes, yes. It's interesting um, how I got there. I, I know I've been particularly keen on asking where I'm going to go, but I just sort of take it as, uh, you know, people will send me where I want to go. But this particular case, somebody wrote to me from the posting plant and said, you know, after you leave Santos, uh, where would you like to go? Which amazed me. And I talked about it with my wife, and uh, we said, oh, I haven't been to Africa, let's put down, we'd quite like to go to Africa. And to my amazement, <laughs> two months later, I was posted to East Africa, um, to a staff job. I, didn't, I wasn't uh, in town, and I went to uh, two jobs. I went initially as the military secretary, the deputy assistant military secretary to the commander-in-chief of East Africa, General Lathbury, at GHQ at Nairobi. So I was seeing the thing from the top level. I wasn't fighting about it in the jungle. I was the staff waller at the top. Um, Absolutely absorbing interesting country, and we lived out uh, a place called Karen, which is quite well known from uh, Karen Dixon's uh, accounts of Africa, uh, which was uh, about 10 miles out of Nairobi, and we lived in a sort of cottage in a hotel, and worked at Waterworks Camp, which is the GHQ. Um, I was on the military secretary side, and therefore I wasn't involved much with the day-to-day -day operations. But one of the things I did find out suddenly, uh, when I arrived out there, uh, General Lathbury was an extremely able and brilliant commander, really wrapped up that command campaign. Uh, and then said to me, look, I want to recommend uh, Brigadier, whatever his name is, for um, a DSO. I said, fine, so I knew all the regulations. And he said, you'll write the citation. <laughs> so I, wrote, I had to sort of think pretty hard. I hadn't written a citation before. And uh, I wrote, uh, that was one of my jobs, actually, to write citations, amongst other things, for the Commander-in-Chief. And if he, once he thought you were all right at it, he just glanced through and signed it, and that was that. Uh, so I wrote the citations for several uh, uh, officers who since retired who got very distinguished <laughs> awards, very distinguished service, including Mama operations, uh, those quite extraordinary brave men, pseudo gangs, you know, dressing up as Mama and going and sitting in with, with Mama, uh, which Frank Kitson was one, yes. actually. Um, that was one thing I had to do. The other thing was looking after all matters pertaining to officers uh, throughout the whole theatre operations, which included Kenya and Tanganyika, as it then was, and Uganda, and Mauritius, which were under our command. So that was one side. Then, fortunately for me, I think, um, halfway through, the Mama began, we began to gradually get the upper hand in Mama. And um, 
there was government house, which was the secretariat of the Kenya cabinet office were there, and they really ran, ran the war, joint military and civilian. And the, the, the commander-in-chief decided that uh, perhaps I wasn't over-employed, which I wasn't a DNS, so I should take on another half-time job as secretary, assistant secretary to the war cabinet um, at government house, which were running the campaign, which again to me was a completely new world. I became assistant secretary to a high-powered civilian who was a secretary. And I used to sit in at the, all the meetings when they decided policy, all the great commander-in-chief, the LegCo and uh, senior people, and then afterwards my task was to write the minutes, or write the first draft of the minute, which was heavily corrected and altered by the senior citizen. <laughs> and they would produce the minutes, which was out of how the campaign should continue. And then I was asked several cases to go out by the secretary and, and to some remote area and tell some wretched DC district commissioner who was struggling against all odds, running his district uh, being heavily um, attacked and undermined by Mamao, people murdering him and so on. I tell him that we ledge care, we've decided that you, you mustn't grow any pineapples or whatever <laughs> outside your village because these are liable to feed the mama. Therefore, it's been decided that in future you must uh, bring back, shall we say, all the growing of your pineapples into a defended area. I got a fairly rough reception with some of these chairs. <laughs> and I was a fresh-faced young staff officer from what they considered GHQ, <laughs> who didn't realize what the war was about. And here was I telling them they shouldn't grow their pineapples or their maize or whatever. Um, it required a certain amount of diplomacy and, and before you establish a rapport with these people uh, and persuade them now that it wasn't only the thing they wore, they saw it, but it was right across the border picture. And, and uh, I got on, I got quite well, quite a lot of experience of dealing with difficult people at that stage, whom I admired immensely because they'd been fighting the Myanmar for about five years and they knew a lot about it. But they had to conform with changes and they had to accept what General Rathby did was to make certain that the Myanmar were restricted in their supplies and to the amount of resource supplies in those operations. So that was uh, quite a, a new type of work for me, which I did for the rest of my time out there. When you were in Nairobi, uh, that Nairobi was quite secure by this time. I think it was one of the earliest operations to ramp the Mau Mau actually in Nairobi, hadn't it? Yeah. Before you arrived. Sorry, one of the... Uh, well, one of the earliest operations carried out was to eliminate the Mau Mau in Nairobi. Yeah, the before I arrived. Yes, yes before I arrived. So, yeah. so you're saying Nairobi was quite secure at this time? Oh, quite secure. Yes, quite, outside it wasn't. On the way between my work and Karen was dangerous sort of country. You always had to be very careful about travelling about, but Nairobi was clear. Yeah. They were really hunting the last of the terrorists uh, in the jungle country uh, and getting Dean Kamati was a name, I, I remember, one of the leading terrorists. It was it mopping up actually in the in the Aberdares and other places. Quite uh, difficult. Uh, and a purely infantry operation, infantry patrol operation, of course. Uh, but I didn't I wasn't involved in that particularly. I did my, my general he was a great chap, General Lath, but he was a great bird watcher and a great um, naturalist really and uh, he one day he said to me we're going to walk i want to see i want to walk across the Aberdares. the Aberdares were a high mountain range which were very dangerous country a lot of mama had been operating there and there were a lot of mama about and um he said right well we, i want to drive out to a certain place in jeep and then we'll walk across the Aberdares, and about 11 miles and then we'll meet the jeep at the other side and, and i'd like you to come with me so i went he had his field glasses and i had a we had an african ascari two African Ascaris, and myself, 
and uh, we set off. We left the jeep and we walked right across the other day mountain and met the jeep at the other side. I was mighty pleased to get to the other side because not only was it very, it was dangerous Mau country, but it was also very wild. There was a lot of rhino about the place and uh, we did meet a rhino. Actually stood in, in our way for some time until we moved away. But uh, he, he was an amazing man, but we got through all right. But I remember looking over my shoulder many time to see where somebody was firing up the other side of the Mama. It's quite frightening, but looking back, what a marvellous experience it was. Lovely country. Lovely, lovely country. The Scarlets are carrying weapons, presumably. Yeah, the Scarlets carrying weapons. I don't think you were. Uh, I was carrying a spare pair of field glasses. I was carrying a revolver, yes. <laughs> yes, the General's field glasses, actually. <laughs> yeah. But I was very sorry to leave. I was there when I, as the campaign developed, I was involved, as the campaign ran down, with my role in the cabinet office, I saw the foundations being laid, really, for the independence of Kenya, because uh, that was obviously coming about, and, and very far-sighted people were, were making plans for the independence of the country. And there was a clash between the, the die-hard white settler who'd been there probably since Kenya was started, or come up from Africa, and he and his family had been there, and they were not going to give one inch as far as uh, giving up the land to the Africans. That was not, a, not an alternative. And the other side was the rather more far-sighted people who realised that change must come, and that uh, inevitably um, the Africans themselves would have to come in and take power and become involved in the government, and the sooner they did the better. So there was an immediate clash in, in, in cabinet discussions like that. But the army went on and uh, they realised that uh, this was coming. And we had no African officers, of course, they were all British officers. I think the highest African was uh, a sort of sergeant major. And we began then training and selecting the first senior Effendies, I think they're called, or so on, majors, to be the new African officers of the new army, which was a very bold step to take, because this was totally new ground. And they were being selected just before I left and trained and put into the King's African Rifles, which was entirely British operated, as the first African commanders, first African officers as young subalterns. Some were total failures, others I think were very successful, went on to higher things when they became independent. But you, didn't, you never encountered the army in the first place. Not by name, but I now looking back, I think he was a cook actually in the 4th KR. I think he was a corporal uh, in the 4th KR, which were in the Uganda Battalion. Mm -hmm. I, I must have been, I reached the Uganda Battalion, I knew them well, but um, I don't remember Idia. <laughs> Idia I mean as such, no, but he was there. He was there in the 4th Battalion, Uganda Battalion, yeah. Yeah, it's a time of great change. But those who were looking forward, of course, were so right and proper to say that they must plan for the change and not just sit and say things will always be as they are, they have been, as has happened in South Africa now, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. um, I was one of those who thought that, that, that it would be possible to change. I thought it had to change, and, and I did think it was possible. And uh, uh, it was a great gratification to me to see that how things went afterwards. Do you, do you feel perhaps it happened too, too quickly? Or it might benefit for a longer transitional period? I don't know, I don't think so. I mean, it, 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 it was quite a long time, actually. Um, well, no, Kenya was you know, as a, as a success story. Yes, it was a success story. I think it was just about right, actually. We had time to plan it. We had to, I don't think we could have delayed it much longer.
because there was a great, uh, but there was a lot of people coming up who were very, but potentially very capable. One of my jobs was to sit in the, in the, in the LegCo, which was the equivalent of the House of Commons uh, of the Keno Cabinet Office, sit behind the minister or whatever it was, rather like people, civil servants do now, I believe, and um, whisper over their shoulder if they got asked questions about some sort of internal security matter. They were all white, of course. Um, but some of the members of the LegCo were Africans, and some of them, if you close your eyes, you, you think you were listening to a debate in the House of Commons, and they're highly intellectual and very impressive. So the, the potential was there, and the one or two members I remember well, who were obviously earmarked for further, for immediate promotion in, in, in government, and they were ready for it. I think it was about right, actually. I think we did a marvellous job in having as we did, to... Um, yes. The in Kenya, yes. in Kenya. Yes. Ken Kenyatta was the person on outside, though he wasn't a kind of sponsored... Uh... <laughs> Kenyatta, I remember his name well, because then he was locked up in the northern province. I mean, he'd been a mama. I mean, he, he was right in Mama. I mean, he'd been uh, involved in, in murders and other sort of things. And he'd been locked up. He was locked up in a detention centre up in the northern frontier, in a fairly arid part. And nobody ever at that time really thought that he would come back. I rather hoped that he, you know, he, would, he would die of drink, I think. They sent him endless bottles of whiskey. <laughs> but they were proved wrong because he came back, of course, and became a very statesman. But I remember his name being mentioned. He was very unpopular because, of course, he hadn't carried out various atrocities, if I call it that, in the Mama, which he was steeped right in the Mama. <laughs> they, Another Mama who uh, penned his memoirs was General China, wasn't it? Yes, he was one of the yes, he was one of the um, people in the forest, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Yes. And and uh, Den Kamati was another name I keep coming back to. I don't know much about him now. They were very remarkably, um, they're very brave people, but uh, I know they're very brutal. They weren't people that I, that I related to particularly well. They were all Kikuyu, most of them, of course. So that was the tribe from which the Mama sprang from, was the Kikuyu. And the other tribes I, I, I tended to relate to more easily. Maasai. Maasai, of course, yes, but they were an independent thought. And the ones in the in the northern frontier who were very rural, independent, and uh, tougher sort of people, whereas the the Kikuyu were basically um, town dwellers, administrators, and that sort of very clever, very clever, but not easy people to whom to relate initially. But the KR didn't have any Kikuyu; they had no Kikuyu in the King's African Rifle. They weren't considered a military type of tribe, only as clerks and administrators. The actual soldiers came from the other tribes, of whom uh, several of them up there. But I think we made a success, I and mean, the thing did become very stable, didn't it, for many years after? It was a success story. Now it's beginning to crumble. Yeah, we had yes. corruption taking place, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the name of Frank Kitson earlier, and the pseudo, -ga pseudo gangs. Yeah. Uh, he, did you encounter him while you were out there? Uh, yes, only on Passau. I knew his name very well because he was, I think, a captain then, and he was one of the pseudo gang. They were the brave, one of the bravest, I think, because their task was, having captured some of the Mau Mau, they'd bring them back to a camp somewhere, and they'd talk to them and eventually turn them so that they gave up their previous, uh, in theory, gave up their previous uh, uh, their convictions and their lands to brutality and so on, and would work on the side of the government. And therefore, they had to go back 
they knew the way where the, the, the Mau Mau were working in the forest. Therefore, they would go back in the forest together with a British officer like Frank Crispin, who was dressed up like an African and their blackened faces and sort of sloppy hat over their eyes. But however well you, you dress up, you can always tell a white man from African by his eyes, the, the colour of it, the whites of his eyes usually give them away. Therefore, they could never look up. They always had to look down. And they would go in with these Mau Mau, the term Mau Mau, and, and make contact. And they would sit in at their council and their discussions in the jungle and listen to all their plans with their former mama, and then after they spent two or three weeks then they would break away and come back and give the information as to what the mama were doing, having listened to it all. Incredible bravery. Only one slip. They didn't talk, they never talked. They, they were just there listening, they could talk. Swahili. But uh, sustained bravery in the most appalling condition, then they came back again, gave away, gave our side all the information necessary in order to track these people down. Very, very brave. You've got a DSO, I think, for that. Well, MC, anyhow, I think. MC, yeah. And yeah. You're, you're in rank by this time. Well, I was a major. You were a major. Yeah. Brigade major, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been a brigade major. major with the but I'd reverted to captain when I was Santos, because I was then a substitute captain. And I went back as a major to East Africa. Right. And that was, uh, took you up to 58. Yeah. Um, Joint Services Staff College at? Latimer. Latimer, yes. Yeah. Uh, Natural progression from Camberley, did you see it as such? Yes, naturally. I was lucky to get there, I think. I, not everybody went there, but my general fortunately recommended to me to go there. It was quite a, quite a, a jolly, really, six months at Latimer, where you, you progressed, really, from seeing the single service point of view to the joint service. And the students were Navy, Army, Air Force, and civilians, and police. And again, your, your study was raised yet once again, and you saw things from a joint service project. Uh, not only military matters, but civilian matters also. And aimed very much at the higher direction, i.e. the Ministry of Defence, working in the corridors of power, and producing briefs, intelligence and so on, and seeing things always on a joint service level, uh, which was an eye-opener for most of us. You know, we knew our own service, didn't know the other one. Well, I was just thinking, actually, you've been far better place than most to understand the, the point of view of the, uh, the other services, because, after all, your uh, Second World War, yeah. the so closely with the the Indian Navy, yeah. and of course you're a flyer yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so presumably you had perhaps more of an insight into their preoccupations and yeah. some of your fellows. Yes, I think I did actually, and uh, I, I knew I could talk. I knew the flying side because I'd been taught to fly by the RAF, and, and I knew neighbours. I knew I knew how sailors salute and that sort of thing, and, and all the sort of rigmarole that goes on on ships. So I knew that. Yes, I think I think I was quite pleased. I don't think academically I had quite the sharpest brain which you require for that sort of work. I think those who are going on to a joint staff problem, uh, appointments in the, in the ministry have to be very, very shrewd and very, very good with the pen, which I don't think is my forte, really. I'm more happy when I'm in touch with soldiers and, 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 and those sort of things than in high-grade staff jobs. So, um, although I'd had the qualification, I didn't, thank God, I didn't go to the Ministry of Defence afterwards. <laughs> I was very lucky about it, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, I should have been sucked into corridors of power, which fortunately I never served in. I never served in the Minister of Defence. So, this, this was Star College, it was a place where you had to pass out. Oh, yes. And, and you did. Oh, yes, yes, yes. otherwise you'd have failed, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because, as you say, you have to go back. Uh, so, presumably, you're happy to go back to um, one of your previous units, the 3rd Regiment, yours? Yes, having been away from regimental soldiering for some years. Since. 
Yes, that's right, since 51. Yes, yes. about eight, eight years, eight actually, years. and a lot had happened since then. So I went back as a battery commander to my regiment, 3rd Regiment, which was then at Bulford, uh, as a battery commander, in, originally on 25 pounders, all things unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. This 25 pounders, so they weren't, they were no longer self-propelled? No, um, no, 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 they'd come back to England and they had towed 25 pounders. Right, yes. Unbelievable. You know, the, Self-propelled was all in Germany, mm -hmm. so we were very back to the sort of thing that I'd trained on, very nearly about 15 years before. And were they still being pulled by quads? Or yes, by quads. They were still by quads, yes, we could have a quad, yes. And uh, life was fairly easy then, and it wasn't very demanding, I don't think. Um, we went out, parts of it went out cyclists so on. <clears throat> but a slight interlude, as far as I was concerned, a slight interlude. Yes, because of course you were back to start college again. As an instructor. As an instructor this time. Yes, yes. Yes, I was lucky in that uh, I got I got promoted to, we had a rank called Brevet Colonel, then Brevet Lieutenant Colonel, which is now gone, which was people, senior majors, who were promoted early to Lieutenant Colonel, they called themselves Brevet, which meant you got the rank, we didn't get the pay, <laughs> didn't get the pay. <laughs> so on I went Brevet and went to Staff College as an instructor to the C Division at Minley. Uh, as a Brevet Lieutenant Colonel, but all the officers there were Lieutenant Colonel, unpaid of course. And there you saw the thing from the other side of the desk, having been a student. Um, I, I didn't think every point I've had it, it was uh, demanding and something new. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the Structural Centres. You worked exceedingly hard, but you had to keep a balance and you couldn't work all the time. And all the officers which one was working with actually all became two or three stars, I mean, they were selected. I didn't see oneself going on a two-star, though my, all my friends did. And uh, the standard of student uh, was very high, higher than perhaps I was, than I being a student, because they, they hadn't all had wartime experience, but intellectually they were a very high standard. So one had to keep one's wits about them. <laughs> now, you remarked when you were uh, a student at Cambly that it had been very hard work. Yeah. Was it as hard work being an instructor? Oh, harder. It's harder. Yes, I think much harder. Were you, were you devised, the information you passed on to the students, Yeah. did you devise the structure of your course yourself, or were you given guidance, were you given to conform within these uh, yes. Uh, guidelines? Yes, yeah, they're, they're very much, uh, very much a form of structured instruction, and that you find yourself as an instructor in a particular cell, dealing with, shall we say, um, infantry tactics, um, history, uh, military history, military writing, something like that, and, and the particular cell that you were in, you, you produced what was called a praises for all that particular subject for a year, of course for a year. And so as an instructor, you had a form of, um, uh, the, the student had a, a praise, and you also had a praise exactly on that subject, which was very detailed. And then the praises were given time, you know, the students had time to study them in their, not in, in school hours, outside school hours. And then each phase was followed up by a series of exercises based on that subject. And that involved a lot of work by the student. The instructor, you already had the answers, if that was the right word, the DS, the directing staff answer to every problem, which was called the pink. And those were on pink writing paper, which the students were never allowed to see. <laughs> because if they were given a whole lot of questions, you had a whole lot of answers, and all the alternative answers. So you, you had a very clear lines as, as to the, the sort of 
the policy uh, of a theme of that particular subject. That said, you had to master all those alternatives. And in the discussions that you had with the students, of course, you had to be immensely to adapt and argue one against the other, or ask them to argue one against the other. So you constantly have to be mentally one step ahead of the students. So, that, so from that point of view, I think you were working probably harder than the students. Instruction was, was always carried out, the staff college had the system of, of syndicate discussions. You would arrive in syndicates of eight, of which the directing staff was the chairman, and practically every subject was discussed in syndicate, where you get all the students to express their views on various things, and then you would, one them or you would sum up on the sort of line that you were supposed to take. Outside exercises, you would a lot of work, preparatory work, and you go out on the ground and meet at certain places where the students would be asked to give their solution to a certain problem, either individually or as little groups. And there again, you had to listen to the solutions and try and sway them towards one or other of this, what is called the DS sort of view on things. But there was not a DS view to everything. The aim was to stimulate discussion and thought about everything. This the DS had to encourage all the time. So you had to be extremely flexible and able to argue with people and able, to, above all, to, to let the students themselves and encourage them to talk. Even though many of them probably, you know, a bit nervous or didn't want to. had to get them to talk about such which they didn't know. So all that was quite, quite demanding, but very interesting. And you had a great influence, of course, on, on the careers of the, of the students concerned. You had to write detailed reports on them. Some of them have gone on, I know, now to higher things. They must have been taught quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, you'd actually say that, uh, hard work indeed, you'd say that you had, you had time for other things. Um, what? What kind of leisure activities did the, the army officer of those days have? It was it uh... much as you made it? I think it was sort of very satisfactory. A, I was married. I was married in 1949, which was when I was third RHA, um, and I've always been very much a man, a family man. I've got four children, and as our family progressed, one more and more time one is occupied with one's family. I regard this as, as a priority. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've got to look after your family, you can't just go and play golf or something. You've got to do that. So that occupied a lot of my time. Um, I was always fairly keen on, on writing, not that i ever written before the war, but I rode when I was Germany, I learned to ride then. And I had a very far-sighted commanding officer who um, insisted that his officers all did something and he said to me, oh, you're about the right sort of, you, you've just learned to ride, you better start race riding. So I found myself steeplechasing in about six months' time, kind of the right sort of shape and weight. Uh, and so I was riding over fences, steeplechasing, and uh, that occupied quite a lot of time. I had to get up early in the morning, um, five o'clock, and exercise for an hour and a half before breakfast, before you did any work at all. This was what the commanding officer reckoned was right, and he was dead right. So that occupied quite a lot of my time. I've always been keen on um, bird watching in a very amateur way. Because as a gunner, you always have a pair of field glasses. Yes. <laughs> and wherever you are in the world, there's always a chance to look up. And if you're not looking at something that's military, there's a chance that you might be able to pretend you're on and look at something that's flying, you know, birds. So it's always a, a thing which goes with gunners, actually. Is this why General Lackley asked you to accompany him across the Aberdeens? Well, maybe, yes. He was much better than I was, actually. I mean, he knew that I liked having a pair of field glasses and, it, and I could relate to the sort of things he was interested in. 
but he was a real expert. I'm, I'm very much an amateur. So those are the main activities, I think. But I come back again, you know, to, to educating one's family. Um, is a very important aspect of anybody's life. And if you're a soldier and you have a family, you've got to spend time with them. And we were lucky. We had, we had I think, 17 houses, maybe 15. In our time, we moved around. And wherever we went, we were determined to establish a home uh, so the children could grow up. Something was familiar. It may have been a picture, something that something they could relate to. And uh, that was the top priority, both of my wife uh, and myself, really. Um, we put a lot into it. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it, I think. And uh, perhaps in some ways we're reaping benefits of that now. <laughs> They're all happily married, actually. They've got ten grandchildren. <laughs> so that was the main activities, I think, yes. yes. This is before I went off, of course, after staff college. Um, now, the, after uh, Camberley, you became the commanding officer of the 50 Missile Regiment. Yes. Now, this, of course, is quite a new piece of armament for the Royal Artillery because yeah. Bloodhound had been brought in and the attack yeah. guns had been retired. Yeah. And they had they introduced some kind of very modern 3.7 inch attack gun which was yeah, obsolete, was. obsolete just as it came in. Yeah. That of course all on the attack side, or air defence side, which a side which I'd never been on. No. I'd always been on the field side. So and the, uh, this, the, 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 the this side. was a field missile. Right. Not it was Honest John. Right, right. Um, and when I was Yes, it was just coming in uh, part of the nuclear deterrent, wasn't it? And uh, eventually it was decided that the, the deterrent had to be graded, wasn't it? And right down to the capability of firing nuclear weapons at divisional level. Yeah. Hence you had to have a weapon capable of doing that. A tactical nuclear weapon. tactical nuclear weapon. And therefore the Americans produced, uh, with their usual brilliance, the Honest John, which was really a rocket on a bit of a railway line, which, you know, like the tape and stand well clear. Not quite, but it was fairly basic stuff. When I was uh, uh, told at Staff Coast that I off to command fit a missile, I was absolutely amazed. I mean, it wasn't sort of something I knew anything about at all. We discussed it and so on. It was field artillery appointment, which I was very pleased about. And I'd just been a brevet lieutenant colonel, so I, I, I've had hoped to command possibly a, a more normal field regiment, you know, perhaps a horse regiment, something like that. But um, the powers would be decided no. For two reasons. One is there were three Honest John regiments in the British Army, in G all Germany, of course. And they were all considered to be high priority regiments, and they had to have good officers, good commanding officers. Mm -hmm. And the second one, which I only realised after I got there, was that the regiment I went to had um, failed in one of its tests. You had to go through nuclear safety tests with the Americans about every six months. And if you failed that, it was a very bad thing. And one of the batteries had failed that, and therefore the regiment had run down to it, I think. And therefore I was sent in, looking back, I suppose, with, with the aim of um, helping it to get back to its form. Although I knew nothing about Honest John. However, I went off to Lark Hill, I learned a bit about Honest John. Uh, we had two batteries of Honest John and two batteries of steam gunnery, the old 8-inch howitzer, which fired a nuclear shell. And I uh, arrived there in the uh, back end of, uh, what was it, 62, wasn't it? I think 1962, uh, in Menden, in Germany, to take command of, of the nuclear missile regiment, which was a, a completely different field to me, you know. And, uh, yes, two things, yeah. So, so the, the, the the warheads for the missiles, yeah. presumably they weren't generally speaking attached to the rocket, to the rockets. Oh no, they were never, they were, 
the, the nuclear bit of the regiment, the nuclear warheads of the shells and the missiles were looked after by the Americans. They had a special detachment attached to my regiment. And they lived in a sort of place in the woods with huge deep bunkers with wire outside and wire outside that. And we had a guard outside the wire and they had a guard inside the wire to stop us getting inside the inside of the wire. Very complicated. And that is where what we used to uh, what we used to call my wife and I used to call them jelly babies lived in you know, the walkheads. We had everything else. And come a certain stage of uh, preparedness or war, either they came out with their lorries, with our protection, and joined us. And the last stage, of course, was that they actually um, started mating the warhead uh, to the rocket. This would be the final stage. So there was a complete difference. But at the same time that we had a complete uh, dummy setup of dummy warheads and everything else. So we could do everything bar the actual turning the key for the live warhead. The warhead we had was high explosive, but it was exactly the same as the nuclear warhead. But they were totally handled by the Americans. And because the Americans had that, they insisted on a very high standard of safety. So every battery had to go through these tests periodically, which were very rigorous. And if you fail them, it was, uh, it was not a very good thing at all. So it was a different challenge altogether to the, to the normal soldier. What, and was, what were the dif different capabilities of the, the missile as opposed to the artillery piece? Because you say you had the nuclear missiles and nuclear shells for the... Yeah. Two, two batteries of 8-inch yeah, howitzers and two batteries of Honest John, yeah. Well, the Honest John uh, <clears throat> had a much greater range. Oh, I don't know, about 30, uh, 35, 32,000, something like that yard. Not a very great range, but you know, quite a long way. And a heavy, comparatively heavy warhead uh, with a moderately low yield weapon. Um, the shell had a much lesser range. Um, 14, 15,000, something like that, half the range, but a much smaller shell, and therefore had a much smaller uh, yield of weapon. Could be used, I don't know, point something of a KT as opposed to perhaps two or three KTs. So, different range and different size of weapon. The shell was very much more accurate, uh, could drop with the accuracy of any, same axis of a gun, and also had a dual rail, it could fire high explosive also. Whereas Honest John could fire much heavier warhead, and therefore a higher KT yield, to a greater range, but not with the same accuracy. Quite a good accuracy, you know, plus or minus 150 yards, something like that, quite good for range, but not the same as the gun, which could be probably with plus or minus 40, 50 yards. So that was the main difference. Um, we used them, we had, each regiment was in support of a division, so we had uh, two Honest John batteries, two 8 batteries, the Honest John used to pretend to be held further back because they had the range. Uh, the HE, uh, the 8-inch hires had to be held a bit further forward because of the of their lack of range. But also, they had the alternative capability of firing high explosive as well. Although there was only, there was only two in each battery, uh, two guns, they could launch a very heavy shell. They had that capability of HE as well as uh, nuclear, which the Honest John hadn't. Basically, it only had the... Uh, nuclear warhead. For practice, we had, I said HE, they had in fact a dummy warhead with a very small high explosive uh, cone to it to give it an impact, but it wasn't a killer in any way. It was basically a nuclear weapon. Did you have live firings in of the, the Honest John? Oh, a lot. Yes, a lot. 
and and the HH, mm -hmm. not nuclear. Yeah. Always, uh, always lovely warhead. We fired at Cognum. I think uh, each launcher probably fired about eight rockets a year, which we fired at uh, at Hona, and the artillery range at Hona. It hadn't got a, it could fire say some good working range of about fifteen thousand, so it could reduce quite quite short range. And uh, we fired a lot of those, and the eight-inch, yes, there was no problem. It was basically a very, very good weapon, uh, quite easy to work, quite uh, simple, had no difficult uh, electronic, it was a free flight rocket. And so you light the tape and stand well clear, and off it went. It there's, had, no, there's no programming to No programming, absolutely program. nothing at all. No, it flew like a, like a, like a shell, really. And uh, so it was basically quite easy to fire. But the, the difficulties were all the sort of uh, nuances connected with nuclear safety. You, know, you hadn't got to do this, you hadn't got to have a spanner, you had to be very careful, you hadn't got to walk underneath the water. And these things were, were difficult. Uh, so the technical side was not a great challenge. I mean, it was a challenge, but not all that great. Um, from the tactical point of view, it was extremely important that we knew that the Russians, the opposition, had targeted all the nuclear missiles in the event of any hostilities one had to prepare for. They would go with their equivalent of the SAS or the long range penetration groups. They would go for the nuclear missiles. Spetsnaz. Hmm? Spetsnaz, I think. Yeah, Spetsnaz, yeah. So uh, and we had no special protector, they had to protect ourselves. So we were deployed in, in little tiny pockets, each on his john, sort of probably three or four miles of it next to one, tucked into a German farm or tucked into a barn, supported by its support troop at the back, but each protecting itself and relying on camouflage and dispersion to be able to do its jobs. It had to survive was the first thing. So that was quite a challenge for Gunn, quite a challenge. Presumably, therefore, that you have to take um, uh, nuclear protection, because if, you, if you've been yeah. uh, targeted, I mean, yes, by the, by the specials, yeah. Soviet special forces, but also presumably Counter-battery fire, yeah. um, just had all, all the equipment. Yes, we did, fairly basic in those days, but we reckon, the, we reckon the, the most important uh, was the special forces type of contact mm -hmm. on us, and rather than the nuclear. And we, we did take nuclear protection, but basically we were concerned about uh, physical attack by conventional forces, led to all that, taking out. And, we do, and they used to follow us whenever we went out of our barracks. Um, uh, we were fairly prominent. You can recognise Norwich John quite easily. <laughs> and, uh, if we went out on the next side, always uh, after about an hour or so, you'd recognise uh, one of the um, Soviet Commission uh, vehicles following you, being authorised. I've got no call now. Soxmith. Soxmith, exactly. Soxmith. You all recognise Soxmith's vehicle, and we always had to report its number because they were not supposed to go out of certain areas. But they would follow practically every exercise we did. And we never allowed them to come too close after a bit. We'd say, this is prohibited. You couldn't come any closer. Off you go somewhere else. So that, that was good for the soldiers. They knew that the, that the opposition were, were interested in them. So it was quite a sort of cat and mouse business. And just after I arrived, we actually had the Cuban crisis, which was uh, just about then, wasn't it? When, uh, yes. odd enough, I just take no command. Uh, and we had this Cuban crisis, which we all felt was very, very serious. And yet we had very no directions at all about doing anything much at the time. We all were wondering what we ought to do. So I remember getting my back to commander scale and saying, well, the first thing is we've got to disperse. We can't sit here in our barracks at Menton. Well, we're actually sitting tired of anybody. So we ordered everybody out and we dispersed in the woods into quite a long way away. 
when I'm done with the film, of course. So it, um, that was my, my own taking decision, taking off my own back, really, um, which I was quite entitled to do. I couldn't just sit there in the barracks with this international crisis building up and we, and we dispersed. In fact, we never got instructions from that at all. That was one problem we had. And the other, slightly uh, unusual problem was that um, I arrived about six weeks after I arrived. We had a major fire in the barracks. Um, in one of the garages, which is all right, you know, fires happen, not very popular in the military world. And then we had another fire, and another, and another, and then about ten, ten days, we had about eight fires in the barracks. So we got rather sick of seeing the German foyer brigada coming up, <laughs> putting out our fires. Everybody was beginning to wonder what was happening, 50 missile regiment. And my wife was just about to have a baby at the time, our fourth baby. Anyhow, we had a lot of fires. And then on the night that she went into hospital, and went in hospital had her baby, we had the, the biggest fire of all in our workshops. Uh, really quite dramatic fire, uh, which did a lot of damage. And then we had special branch and when came in to look at it. Uh, there was obviously somebody, an arsonist, in the regiment. And this was a, a fairly trying time, because they were going up saying, you know, what are you doing about it? <laughs> and when you go into the problems of an arsonist, you realise what complicated personage they are. Um, first of all, I well, you had to start looking at all your potential homosexuals. And everybody was under suspicion, commanding officer downwards. And uh, it was a very worrying time. And I had armed uh, had soldiers in my my house, uh, special branch, around with radios watching and so on. In the end, um, we had success because um, we had a fire down in, in the cellar, one of the barracks, quite a small fire. The motor police came straight away and uh, investigated it. And they found that uh, they found a petrol can had a fingerprint on it. So everybody in the regiment, but everybody had to their fingerprints taken. And they only told me what the result was, and, and I knew when they told me the result of one of my officers. Uh, this was difficult. One of my officers, one of my officers, one of my majors actually. And so, uh, but the evidence, for some reason, they, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't prosecute certain circumstantial evidence. And uh, so I, I had to live with this chap. They said, we'll watch him very carefully for about a month, see if he's going to strike again. He did strike once more. Anyhow, luckily, the, the Commander-in-Chief, Ryan Army General Darling, uh, rang me up and said, uh, all the evidence that I've got, you must tell this officer to leave Rhine Army within 48 hours, without any reason given. Those days the Commander Chief had the authority to move people. And so I had him in the office and said, I've had a message from the Commander Chief saying that you've got to leave Germany within 48 hours, because he exploded. And said, what do you think, think I'm the bloody arsonist? I said, I have no idea, but you've got to go. He knew that I knew that he was a chairman. And he went, and we never had another farm. <laughs> so, <laughs> He turned out to be a very, a very interesting character, he was very clever, and uh, he was slightly twisted in his character, and I think he resented me, I was about four or five years younger than him, when he also and he decided to try and, uh, and do his best to upset my time in command by destroying the regiment, the devil destroyed me. Uh, I got rid of him, everything stopped, we were fine, we got on with it, uh, so we got through quite, quite a difficult initial sequence. <laughs> I know the chap. I know exactly who he is, but uh, it was never publicised as to who he could be because the evidence was circumstantial. Mm -hmm. A lot of people knew exactly who he was. So that was quite an interesting time. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs>
and that was 61 and 63 yeah. uh, appointment. Yeah. Did you um, have any idea where you might be going next? No, none at all. Um, I have no idea. The, the time of command is, is one of the most fulfilling times that you have as a, as a soldier. That is, everything culminates in that sort of pinnacle that you've been training for in your life. And eventually, um, I haven't thought about uh, what happened when I finished. And then I was told I was going to uh, to the School of Artillery, uh, the instructor in, uh, in in tactics and nuclear weapons, which I was slightly disappointed at because I felt that I wanted to do something else. Uh, I'd been in this, and I didn't know much about Lark Hill. I'd never been there except for the cadet. And so I accepted it, and off we went to Lark Hill. We had about um, 18 months there, which I, in fact, I thoroughly enjoyed. We had a nice court, and nice for my family, and, and we taught, uh, taught uh, nuclear tactics and other things, which I knew a certain amount about. And it was very much um, the in thing then. People were prepared to talk about nuclear tactics. What, what, what was the uh, strategy?